So, Professor Mac McLaughlin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Josh, and uh, please call me Mac. Yeah, yeah, all right. All right. And so, what's your background in um, disability rights? Because I'm assuming that you've done a lot of work in the field of disability. Sure. Uh, so, um, I, I, as it happens, I'm a, a neurodiverse person myself, but of course, being neurodiverse doesn't mean that you have a, a rights-based uh, perspective. Um, my early uh, training was in, in psychology and uh, clinical psychology. Um, but after working in that area, uh, I also moved into, I guess, more international work, uh, working with a number of UN agencies about uh, trying to implement the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities uh, across a range of low and middle income countries in Africa and Asia. Yeah, and and did you so well so what's this eight so what's this um clinical lead that I was told about, but the one by the ah. health services health services executive that I was read that you worked for? Yeah. So the, the health service executive is a sort of rather confusing term, but it's basically the national health service in the Republic of Ireland. And in uh, 2020, uh, during COVID, um, they established a new, um, what was called the National Clinical Programme for People with Disability. Um, and that programme... Uh, its primary remit uh, was to implement the UN CRPD uh, across health services uh, with within Ireland, mm-hmm. and yes. uh, I, I was appointed the the inaugural the the first uh, clinical lead for that program. Yeah, and and so yeah, basically for those of you home, just think of the HSC as sort of the NHS. Yeah. In the yeah. UK. Yeah. Yeah. And and what what prompted you to write this article that I saw that was published in the Irish Times on listening to people with disability? Was that was that drawn for your own personal experiences? Was it drawn from the experience of people that well, you met? It, it it was my personal experiences, but maybe of a rather different kind because uh, I had actually, as the clinical lead for disability in Ireland, I'd been asked to appear before uh, that committee. Um, and so that committee was the Joint Committee on Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth. And they had just published a uh, report on assessments of need for children. Um, so part of that uh, report uh, drew from uh, some of the times when I had appeared before the committee um, and uh, sort of cited some of the things I said in it. And I thought it was an excellent uh, report that they produced with some very um, constructive uh, suggestions. Uh, within the report, they had asked a, a couple of things. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and one was, to, to what extent was there input from people with disability, their families, carers and therapists, uh, in, in the development of um, what we call assessment of need. So I wanted to respond to that, indicating that there had been very strong uh, involvement from uh, all of those groups within a, a process that we undertook to develop a new procedure for assessment of need. And then the other question that they asked was about the um, number of people with uh, 
lived experience of having a disability who were involved in uh, the advisory committee for the uh, National Clinical Programme for People with Disability. Um, so I guess one of the reasons I particularly wanted to respond to that question, Josh, was that um, uh, as the first clinical lead, I had uh, really been responsible for designing that advisory committee. And I wanted to let people know that there were seven out of 22 people, uh, in, including myself and the independent chair person who was a, a a person who um, has autism and uh, is the chairperson of As I Am, the Irish Autism uh, Group. But we also had um, other people who were specifically there to represent um, the uh, interests and experiences of people with different types of disability. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to convey uh, that the work of that, um, uh, what we call the Disability Advisory Group, uh, was indeed uh, very influenced by living experience of disability. I, I also wanted to point out to them that the International Centre for Evidence and Disability in London had in fact identified that group as an example of uh, best practice uh, internationally. Yeah. And so what exactly was the nature of your work as well, the first ever clinical lead? What yeah, so the, the, the first uh, clinical lead for disability in, in Ireland, uh, it, my, the nature of my work was really to design services so that they were more uh, appropriate uh, uh, to the needs of people with disability and address the sort of concerns that were experienced by, by people with disability. Um, so to make that a wee bit more concrete, um, uh, obviously there's been a, a, a legacy of uh, a medical model approach within uh, disability services. Um, and that's often presenting people with disability, obviously in terms of having deficit or disease or disorder. Um, and uh, we promoted alternatively a, a rights-based approach, which looks at much more like a, a strengths-based uh, approach. It would certainly em embrace the idea of, uh, for instance, neurodiversity um, of uh, difference rather than deficit disease or, or disorder and of really building on the, the different sorts of strengths that, that people have while not in any way um, denying or running away from the fact that of course there's people with disabilities who have very particular and sometimes uh, uh, quite significant uh, medical needs that need to be met in a way that is uh, medically appropriate but also respectful of, of the rights of people with disability. And have you previously collaborated with like NGOs or with like the Committee for Disability Matters that's run by um, the TD, Michael, Michael, Michael Moyni and sorry. Sure. Yeah. My, did, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. yeah um, well, I, I guess in, I mean, I've been working in this area for over 30 years. So I've, I've, collaborated with a lot of civil society um, at the moment um, I'm working with the International Disability Alliance uh, which uh, is, as you probably know is based in um, uh, in Geneva and New York and it's the international umbrella organization for organizations for persons with disability um, I'm also working with the European Disability Federation 
Um, and uh, I've done a considerable amount of work with uh, human humanity and inclusion, which used to be called um, Handicap uh, International, but I'm glad to say it changed its name. Um, and then I'm also involved in a, in a, a, a large-scale uh, research project um, called uh, SHAPES, which is the SHA is about smart and healthy aging. Uh, and that works with, I think, 36 different partners across Europe. But two of those partners, uh, the World Federation of Deaf Blind and the European Union of the Deaf, um, are obviously representative civil society organisations so really, uh, whether it's on the research side of my work uh, or on the clinical side of work, we would always uh, work with um, uh, living experience of uh, disability perspectives. Yeah. And so what was what was it like working in Malawi? Because you told me you worked in Malawi for a period. Um, and did you notice any cultural differences between how disability was perceived in Ireland versus Laos and other African nations? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think disability is differently in in Ireland, in the UK, in Australia, in Africa, and yeah. in etc. Every country constructs disability in slightly different ways. And by constructs disability, some of that might be to do with cultural understandings, but constructs disability is also to do with the uh, laws and regulations about who qualifies as being disabled and what, uh, and if they do so qualify, what level of social supports that we offer people. So in some countries, the level of social supports are much greater. So in other words, the role of people with disability is valued more. So. I think different different societies look on disability in different ways. Um, certainly within Malawi, um, where I worked uh, for three years in the early uh, 90s, um, it was more often the case that people would attribute um, disability to um, negative things having happened either to them or to their parents uh, previously. Uh, and that there was a sort of consequence uh, to be paid and that that was uh, a person with a disability. Um, I would have to say that I don't think the attitude in many uh, richer countries differs that much because I think in many of those countries, people with disability are uh, othered and they are stigmatized. Um, in other words, they're pushed to the side of, of society and I think that's another way of um, uh, feeling that somehow people deserve the, the difference that they experience and that we shouldn't fully accommodate them. So I think that the patterns are actually quite similar, but that the way in which we explain things to ourselves, uh, whether it's to do with bad luck or malevolence or, or uh, witchcraft or fear um, or... Um, uh, marginalization economically the way in which we explain things might different but the, the the processes are rather similar yeah and did you learn and did you like learn anything about how to support people with disabilities during COVID and how COVID impacted disability because I know that there are some people who they caught COVID and now they have these 
other life will sure. issues that they're going to have to live with. I think it's called long COVID. Did you know yeah. anything about that? Yeah. Uh, well, in, in fact, um, I mean, COVID was certainly a huge challenge in, in Ireland as in uh, elsewhere, but it also gave us a lot of very valuable insights. Um, so uh, one of the things that really struck us was that um, COVID actually gave a sort of insight to many people who don't experience disability to what it might be like to have a disability. Um, because if you think about it, people often experience um, living um, in a community or in an institution in quite an isolated uh, manner. And again, they were often um, sort of segregated from other people. Um, people uh, sometimes had a fear towards them and it was difficult for those people with COVID sometimes to participate uh, in activities and to feel in included and part of society. So just at, at, at one overall level, I think COVID might have helped some people empathize a bit more with what the everyday life is like for many people with disabilities. Um, but from our service provision uh, point of view, certainly there was a huge loss of opportunity for people to um, socialize with each other and to come together in, for instance, uh, day services or in employment um, or at school. Um, but there are also some positives. So we found that, for instance, um, some people reported that they were able to join uh, virtual uh, groups, whereas they actually found it very difficult to join physical groups. Um, now, that might be because they had a long way to distance, uh, a long distance to travel. So they might have to get a bus, which would not be accessible for them. And so that made attendance at, at day services uh, difficult. Um, but others also described how if they worked or if they had a child with a disability, uh, they find it incredibly difficult to attend meetings during the day. Um, but that it would be possible to sort of hop on to a, a virtual call whereas it would be much more difficult to go to, to a physical meeting. Um, so there was, the, the, at least for some people, it was more inclusive, but it also had greater reach. And we find that some people were able to attend services more frequently than they previously did. Um, yeah. that, that's not in any way to suggest that digital or virtual services should replace face-to-face -face services, not at all. But what they could do is form a very useful um, uh, addition to them, providing greater outreach and, and greater inclusion. Yeah. And, and so how can the mental health of people or how can mental health services for people with disabilities be accessed? Because I'm, I'm always looking back at my own life and I've, and I feel like a lot of my experiences as a person with a disability has been impacted by, mm. well, my mental health has definitely taken really big hits over the years, especially as a teenager with a disability. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm in my 20s. So. Yeah. Well, I think that's a shared experience uh, with, with many people. Um, one of the things that um, struck me recently, I was at a conference, um, again on uh, autism and at, at that conference there was a paper presented and it was uh, effectively 20 studies of people with autism who developed mental health problems um, and some of them had really quite severe uh, mental health conditions 
Um, in each of the 20 problems in the case, uh, each of the 20 case studies, they traced their their first experience of mental health problems to uh, bullying uh, at school. Um, so if you think of our mental health services at the moment, which certainly in Ireland have predominantly a medical model uh, approach, uh, people, they, they use a terrible uh, term, which is they talk about uh, people with uh, disability who have a mental health problem as being comorbid, uh, meaning that they have more than one condition, um, as though depression or anxiety or, or whatever uh, came along in an unconnected way with the experience of disability. Um, and I, I think it's really worrying that we uh, medicalize and individualize uh, mental health conditions, which actually have their origin in how uh, people experience their interaction with others in society. So we should be looking at much more about creating uh, psychologically more f friendly and inclusive participative in environments. And that's certainly um, for people with disability, but for the general population. And then we should be using, for instance, medication as an absolute last resort. And we should be making sure that uh, people with disabilities have the right to develop uh, skills and access uh, therapies and other social supports that help them develop those skills, um, as as well as uh, countering stigma, uh, say, on the more societal level. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and at the inaugural lead of a new program, like, did you find resistance to promoting a rights-based model, like, when you presented your work? Um. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. The answer is yes and no. So when I talk to people about it uh, initially, at a very superficial level, uh, people would be very positive. But when I got into detail about what it actually meant, there was often very considerable uh, re resistance. Uh, and I would have to say uh, some of that came from um, health uh, professions. Uh, in, so if you look at the idea of, for instance, the participation and co-decision making of people with disability in the health service context. Um, often health uh, practitioners find that quite challenging uh, because obviously it's questioning the, um, the primacy of their knowledge and it's bringing in a different perspective that might interpret things in, in different ways. Um, again, many of our health services I would really like to emphasize not disability services because uh, these services are run on what we call a competency base so they can be led by any health profession um, and they're appointed in terms of who's the most competent to lead a, a team but in other areas in the Irish Health Service and in many other countries um, again you have a very dominant medical model uh, where you, you um, have a an insistence um, for a medical practitioner to be the lead of a team. And that, of course, brings a very medical model and increases prescription of drugs and often um, pathologizes uh, what are uh, socially caused uh, problems. So if you're going up against 
uh, you find people who are in powerful positions who don't want to lose their power. Um, so whilst mm-hmm. I'm happy to give sort of positive noises on the surface about approach, when you actually say to people, okay, so this is how you need to change your service, uh, they're much more reluctant to, to do it. And so this, this is going to be, you know, an ongoing challenge. The, the more that people understand a rights-based approach, the more they understand that they, they need to give away power, need to allow people with disabilities to become uh, more central to their own decision-making, to their, to their own life choices. Uh, and so that's going to be a learning uh, for uh, health professionals. But we, we shouldn't we shouldn't let people's reluctance to give away power just because the reluctance to give away power is the actual problem. When we're addressing the problem, when we're not addressing it, we're we're running away from the problem. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Of course, I couldn't. I I couldn't agree more. We we all, Thank you. We need to give the people a greater platform to share their experiences, share their views, and yeah. Well, hopefully, this show has done a good job at laying groundwork if, if anything and so Hopefully, thank you yeah. thank you mac for joining us here today if you guys oh, well, enjoyed this I, episode yeah yeah thank you very much for the invitation uh josh i appreciate it all the you best know, anyway, thank you and all the best for you and your future projects and please remember to like share leave review okay and see you guys yeah. next time see you yeah so, right.